This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast. I want to talk about a topic today that is of absolute importance, no matter what setting you may find yourself in, whether it's in a pre-hospital setting, in the emergency department, the intensive care unit, and that's the topic of hypoxia. And initially, uh, when people are asked to come see a patient who may be on a mechanical ventilator, typically they are in the intensive care unit, and the patient's uh, suffering hypoxia, we immediately have to go into the mode is, of what are the ABCs, and, and that is control the airway, uh, assist breathing after you assess it, obviously, um, make sure you've got an evaluation of the patient's circulatory status, are they having an arrhythmia, are they in, in shock, uh, and then go from there. But... All too commonly, the first thing that we do is increase the amount of oxygen that the patient is getting, called the FiO2 on the ventilator, and or put the patient on, say, from 6 liters nasal cannula to a 40% venting mask. And we see an improvement in the saturation, and, and that's the point where we leave it. But is that really what the appropriate treatment is? What I want to go into in this particular podcast is drilling down as to asking yourself, why is this patient hypoxic? I often talk about not treating the symptoms, but treating the underlying problem. Uh, the example that I use over and over and over again is my muffler falls off my car, I can replace the muffler, or I can uh, turn up the radio. If I turn up the radio, I'm totally unaware that I have a loud muffler, but the problem still persists. First of all, I think it's, go, it's important to go back and, and clear up some perhaps misperceptions about oxygenation. And one of the things that I like to do is, is if you've ever done a brain death assessment on a patient, go back and, and look at that experience. Because when you have somebody who may, may have a devastating brain injury, from whatever the cause, uh, you've done your neurological exam, it's flat, you've got a, a t- terrible CAT scan, uh, you do your cranial nerves and, and they're, they're absent, and you do what's called an apnea test. When you do an apnea test, you end up putting the patient on CPAP, you've got them on the pulse oximeter, you make sure that they're warm, you get a baseline blood gas, and you've got them on CPAP. Basically, you've got pressure on the ventilator, but the machine is not moving any air in and out of the patient. There's no tidal volume there. And for minutes, sometimes maybe 10, 15 minutes, you've got the patient on CPAP until a period which you feel uh, has gone by where the um, partial pressure of carbon dioxide on the blood gas is elevated to the appropriate threshold. But meanwhile, the patient's saturation, in most cases, will remain stable. So you see a uh, increasing your carbon dioxide, but no increase in your oxygenation. And the reason for this is simply that uh, oxygenation typically will work by diffusion and uh, ventilation or the um, movement of carbon dioxide works by convective movement of gas. You have to have a tidal cycle, moving gas in and out. Um, ox- just because you have oxygen in your lung doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting oxygen into your blood. To illustrate this example, I like to take one of our intensive care unit rooms. We have a typical ICU where you've got, you know, a room with three regular walls, and on the fourth wall, basically the the wall that overlooks the hallway, uh, is a glass sliding glass doors. Imagine we are oxygen molecules and we go into this room and this room represents the alveolus of the lung. Just the fact that we're standing in the room does not mean that we're going to get oxygen into the patient's blood. In order to get oxygen into the patient's blood, the oxygen molecules 
collide with the segment of the alveolus where the exchange of gases from the blood to the alveolus occurs. The whole, and this is basically where, is, where the, the capillary is. You cannot sit there and bang oxygen uh, into an alveoli septa uh, where there's no capillaries and expect gas exchange to occur. The greater the number of collisions into that segment of the alveolus, the greater amount of oxygen will be transferred into the blood supply. Seems pretty straightforward. So if we go back to my markup model of the lung, my ICU room, let's make the glass wall that's open, the doors that are open, the, the glass sliding doors are pushed open. That's the segment of the alveolus where we, the people that are in there acting as oxygen molecules, have to make a collision against that glass wall. And when we do, we pass through the glass wall into the hallway, and that's the blood supply that takes us out. Reasonably straightforward. How do I increase the number of collisions? of oxygen molecules or people. Well, I can increase the number of people in the room. And that would be equivalent to increasing the fraction of inspired oxygen, which you call the FiO2 or the oxygen concentration. The more people I put in the room and they're kind of mulling around, the greater the likelihood that people are going to bump into the, the, the glass door, the membrane, uh, and transfer from the alveolus into the blood supply. Uh, the other thing I can do is increase the size of, I don't call it the membrane, but the, the blood gas exchange surface. One way I could do that are things like increase the functional residual capacity, or the FRC, by things like uh, recruitment maneuvers. And I can maintain those with things like PEEP. Uh, in our example, what we would do is maybe we would close the doors, increasing the surface area of that alveolar gas exchange um, a membrane, if we can call it that, and therefore increase the number of collisions. One thing we could do, we could increase the amount of movement of the people in the room. Uh, maybe we can get us all spaced up or, or jacked up on uh, my morning, my kids' morning uh, breakfast cereal. So we're all on this sugar high. Give us a bunch of glasses of of uh, Vault and Red Bull. We got this caffeine buzz going. People are milling about the room faster um, and making more collisions. From a biological standpoint, maybe we would heat the gas in order to get that increased kinetic energy of those gas molecules. That would do it, but it's not reasonable or practical to do that uh, in an ICU model, certainly not to the point where you'd see an improvement. You can certainly heat gases, but not to the point you're going to see an increased number of collisions. Or we could do something like go to high-frequency ventilation. And by using high-frequency ventilation, what you're doing is you're increasing, a conf you're conferring an increased velocity or kinetic energy to the gas molecules. You see an increased greater number of collisions. And what that does is that increases your, your oxygenation. You may get more collisions at a given FiO2. And this is one of the concepts that work well in, in oscillation, high-frequency ventilation in the form of oscillation, and jet, and the, the mode of ventilation that we use a lot in burn units, not only in our burn unit, but other burn units around the country, is high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. Now, CO2 is a different beast, as we talked about. CO2, you actually have to have movement of gas in and out, and that's that convective movement of gas. Uh, so uh, that's why you'd see the elevation of the CO2 on a uh, brain death assessment or an apnea test and not see an increase in your oxygenation. But we're going to focus today on oxygenation. 
there are some distinct reasons, and, and you could break it down to principally five distinct reasons why people would have problems with oxygenation. They would include things such as a low FiO2, a low fractional uh, inspiratory oxygen concentration. Um, and we'll go into some of those things that would cause that. That would seem like that could be a potentially um, rare reason. Um, we could have VQ mismatching in the form of dead space. We could have VQ mismatching in the form of shunt. We could have diffusion abnormalities, which could be something like a pneumonia. Uh, and then we could have problems with things such as hypoventilation. Uh, can actually cause a low um, oxygen level in our blood. How do we look at oxygen? Well, keep in mind that we've got really two uh, tools that we use to assess the magnitude of oxygenation in one's blood. We have the pulse oximeter and we have the blood gas. And the blood gas we look at is called the PO2. Now, the PO2 is the partial pressure of oxygen, and that is the amount of oxygen that is dissolved in the plasma of the blood dissolved in the plasma of blood. This is a very important distinction. Now when we look at the pulse oximeter, that is the saturation of, of a hemoglobin with oxygen. So if we have a certain uh, volume of hemoglobin, a certain mass of hemoglobin would be more appropriate, what percentage of that is saturated with oxygen? And it's important to recognize is how are we designed to carry and transport oxygen in our body, dissolved in the plasma or bound to hemoglobin. And there's a formula that if you do critical care and work with things like PA catheters, that is real important, and that goes into what we call oxygen kinetics. And that is, what is the content of uh, arterial blood, and you can do the same thing, same formula exists for content of venous blood, oxygen content, and we, we call it the C AO2 for our arterial blood, and that's the fact that hemoglobin times 1.34 times your saturation of oxygen is the amount of blood, or the amount of oxygen that is bound to a particular volume of blood. Um, that's uh, bound to hemoglobin. That's determined by your saturation. You, mo you add to that 0 0.0031 times your partial pressure of oxygen, um, which is really a small number. It's a small number if your partial pressure of oxygen is 200. It's a really small number if the partial pressure is 100. But that's normal. And it's a really small number if your partial pressure of oxygen is 60. Why? Because it's the amount of oxygen basically dissolved in the plasma, the water of the blood, not the hemoglobin, which was how you were designed to carry and transport oxygen. Now, let's get back to what are the causes of hypoxia. We said a low FiO2 is number one. That would seem uh, a unlikely reason why somebody has a low oxygen. Um, why would that be? Well, maybe they're on Mount Everest and there's low ambient oxygen. Another situation that could make somebody hypoxia, certainly not in an intensive care unit, but it would be applicable to, say, a burn patient, is that um, if you are in a burning building or a burning room, remember, fire, the fuel for fire typically is oxygen. It feeds on the oxygen. So as a fire is burning in a room, it's consuming the oxygen and it's lowering the FiO2. So a patient who comes to you who've been 
in a structure fire, there's several things, the soot, the poisons that are in the smoke, carbon monoxide and cyanide gas, that could be a problem. But also they could have a hypoxia for being exposed to sub-atmospheric or sub-ambient levels of oxygen, much like if, you, if they were suffocating with a pillow or a, uh, a bag. Um, in the intensive care unit, things you need to be thinking about is, is there a problem with the mixer, the blender, on the um, uh, ventilator. Now, I'm not talking about the blender to make margaritas, but you, when I hook up a ventilator to a wall, there's a, a gas line that goes to um, air, and there's a gas line that goes to oxygen, and there's a device in there that blends those to give you an appropriate FiO2. It, it, these are mechanical devices, and they can fail. And for these reasons, you always need to have oxygen sensors uh, in your vent lines to make sure that your FiO2 that you're dialing on your ventilator is the FiO2 that is on the patient side uh, of the ventilator. Uh, there have been reports, and, and it's happened throughout the country, uh, where gas systems have gone down. People have thought that they've had adequate amount of oxygen, and they haven't. People have experienced injury from that. Uh, another situation, perhaps more likely to occur almost any day, is that you're transporting a patient from one part of the hospital to the other. And so you've got a patient who's on a mechanical ventilator. They're on FiO2 at 50%. You get your AMBU bag. You've got your tank of oxygen. And you're off to CAT scan or you're off to the operating room or you're going from the emergency department uh, to the ICU. And everything seems good. But then the patient begins to desaturate. Well, did you have enough oxygen in that tank when you left for your transport? And is that the reason why that patient's hypoxic? Um, and again, that's probably one of the more common reasons that we would see uh, of a low FiO2. Now, it's interesting because that's probably the thing that we do the most is increase the FiO2. Now, the other thing we said is VQ mismatching in the form of uh, shunt is another reason. VQ mismatching, VQ mismatching stands for ventilation perfusion. Keep in mind that in a lung, you've got the air and the oxygen coming into the lung. And that's the ventilation part of it. Part of it, and then you've got the 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 blood going through the lung parenchyma that's getting rid of the carbon dioxide and picking up the oxygen. That's the perfusion. If you have a mismatch where you have less ventilation than you have perfusion, that's called shunt. Or if you have a situation where um, you've got um, uh, adequate or normal ventilation but a decrease in the blood flow to an area of the lung, that's called dead space. So VQ mismatched in the form of shunt, where we have areas of the lung that aren't being, that don't have adequate gas delivery, don't have adequate oxygen delivery to them, but being, that are being adequately perfused, that's shunt. Probably the, the most common one that I typically think of is um, ARDS. ARDS is really a disease about compliance and shunt, and um, it used to be that we used to do a lot in, in following the shunt and trying to reduce the shunt fractioning, and there's elaborate formulas that we can use to calculate what a person's particular shunt fraction is. Normal, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably shunt fraction is about 3 to 5%, mostly due to what we call bronchial blood vessels that are taking blood from the right side of the circulation to the left side of the circulation and not being exposed um, to uh, oxygen. Um, but that those numbers in somebody who has ARDS can get very, very high. They could be 35, 40, 50% shunt fractions, which are, as you could see, are very pathological. We're not going to get into so much about how to Treat shunt fractions. Another thing that can cause uh, an area of the lung to be ventilated but not perfused, or excuse me, to be perfused, blood flow going through it but not being ventilated, would be something like a mucus plug. 
Um, if you have a big ball of snot that uh, that is blocking the bronchus of a particular area of the lung, uh, uh, oxygen is not going to exchange through there. Gas isn't going to come in and out, but the blood flow will continue. Interesting about that is that if you increase the amount of oxygen there, you will probably see a short-term improvement in the patient's oxygen saturation, but you can actually make the, the atelectasis worse. Now, that seems kind of strange. But this is something called nitrogen washout. This is something that shows up on exams, on, on general surgery and service exams. If you're an anesthesi anesthesiologist, this is something that is uh, very important to you. But keep in mind that 70% of the environment um, is nitrogen. And nitrogen is what makes our, our sky blue. Typically what I do to illustrate this is I'll, I'll tell you to imagine Star Wars. Okay, get out the, the, the geek index here. But there's an episode of is it the, the original Star Wars movie. They find themselves in a room and there's garbage and everything else and the walls begin to move on them. And Luke Skywalker grabs a piece of steel and tries to brace the walls from collapsing in on them. In that scenario, that piece of steel that's keeping the walls from collapsing in on them is nitrogen. Because keep in mind, oxygen is getting absorbed. So if you've got this, this alveolus and oxygen is getting absorbed, what is keeping it from collapsing on itself? And that is the nitrogen that isn't as readily absorbed. And so when you increase the amount of oxygen in the alveolus, you're decreasing the amount of nitrogen. And therefore, the walls of the alveolus are more likely to collapse on themselves, creating atelectasis which creates its own inherent problems. So in this circumstance, you, you know, if you have something uh, that, for instance, atelectasis is causing your hypoxia, increasing the FiO2, which most people will typically do, um, you know, the nurse will call the resident uh, or the intern to the bedside, he's got a low saturation, the first thing everybody does is increase the FiO2. That will provide you the short-term solution. It does nothing to treat the mucus plug, and in the long-term solution, in the long term of it, it'll probably make the situation worse by, by aggravating the atelectasis. Uh, and again, that's the concept of um, nitrogen washout. And again, that is a, is a common question that people see on exams. Now the next thing we talked about is VQ mismatching in the form of dead space. And again, we define dead space as where you've got a, a adequate ventilation, air moving in and out of that appropriate segment of the lung, but no perfusion. What would typically cause this? And what would typically cause this is the, probably the most uh, um, common example that people would think of would be something like a pulmonary embolism, where a blood clot would come, occlude a blood vessel, blood flow can no longer get to the alveolus, and therefore gas exchange can no longer occur in that segment of the lung. Now, increasing the FiO2 will perhaps increase some of the um, collisions uh, of the, the uh, alveolar gas membrane in other segments of the lung, but does it, does it affect the problem of poor perfusion to the disease segment? The answer is no. So again, the treatment for there would be to treat the pulmonary embolism and certainly to keep the patient from uh, having more uh, emboli debris end up in the lung and creating further embarrassment. So those are some of the causes we've talked about. We said a low FiO2. We said VQ mismatching in the form of shunt. We said VQ mismatching in the form of 
dead space. Now, there becomes uh, impairment of gas exchange, uh, and this is because of edema of the alveoli or because of uh, a localized infection. Gas doesn't get through the uh, uh, alveolar gas membrane as easily. And this could be, if you'd imagine, again, going back to our glass wall representing where gas exchange occurs, maybe the glass is getting thicker. And this would be caused by things such as pulmonary edema or pneumonia. Uh, and that would be uh, our, our fourth cause. Fifth cause could be something like hyperventilation. The fact that if we don't have enough gas actually exchanging, and we did say oxygen occurs by diffusion, not by convective movement of gas. But if your patient is taking agonal respirations because they've had something like a CVA uh, or they've had you know, a, a high dose of narcotics or some other underlying organic problem, uh, by taking those small hypoventilatory breaths, they're going to have uh, uh, hypoxia as well. And again, with, you know, in that circumstance, if your patient's uh, hypoventilating, just increasing the FiO2 uh, and not giving them any ventilatory assist, again, would be not uh, the appropriate course of action. So why are we going through all this? Why have this podcast at all? Well, the reason why we're going through this is that when you are called to see a patient who's having a drop in their saturations or you know into the low 90s or perhaps even into the 80s, and you go to assess the patient, yes, the most expedient thing to do is perhaps put the patient on more oxygen, maybe put them on 100%. But the key thing there is to finish out your assessment, to try to figure out why your patient is having a problem uh, with the decreased oxygenation? Are they developing a pneumonia? Have they developed a pulmonary embolism? Uh, are they developing pulmonary edema from uh, mobilization of fluids? Or maybe they receive too much in the form of IV fluids? Or maybe they're having cardiogenic shock from a, a new MI? Are they developing ARDS? And drill down onto what is the cause. Be mindful that of the five things that we talked about, uh, that cause hypoxia, a low FiO2, VQ mismatching in the form of uh, shunt, VQ mismatching in the form of dead space, uh, decrease uh, oxygen diffusion because of something, uh, thickening of the membranes or, or, or a, an active pulmonary infection or hypoventilation. Of those five things, only one of them are treated in total by increasing the concentration of inspired oxygen. The other four are treated by treating the underlying cause. Maybe it's giving them anticoagulants. Maybe it's you know treating the ARDS and, and using things like open lung strategies. Or maybe it's a start of antibiotics. And of those five physiological things that we've talked about that cause hypoxia, the one that's treated in total by just increasing the oxygen concentration is probably the cause that occurs with the lowest frequency of all of our ICU patients. It's not common that people are, are hypoxic solely because they don't have enough FiO2 on their line or because they're in a subatmospheric uh, environment in a house fire or on a mountain or on a high altitude aircraft. Thanks for listening. This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Um, you can check out other podcasts that I have on the internet. Um, PHTLS podcast dedicated to pre-hospital trauma care. The other podcast that I have is Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional, uh, which is a companion to a textbook that we have out 
by Elsevier. Also check out the website, birddoc.com. Thanks for downloading. Have a great day.